If you're uh, visiting us here for the first time, I'd, I'd like to welcome you. Or if you're back for the second or third time, we're, we're glad you're back and, and welcome. Uh, my name is Andrew Anderson, and I'm the associate pastor here at the Church of Pecan Creek. So if, if you've been with us for a, a little time, perhaps you've uh, expected to see Trey Talley up here. I hope that doesn't disappoint you, but if it does, feel free to join us next week, and he will be back. He is uh, out of town, but uh, I will continue uh, where he left off, taking us through the series he's been preaching through called The Christian Home. And if you've joined us uh, for the past few weeks, you know that we've been talking about the Christian home. What are what are the features of, of a Christian home? And as believers, how, how is our household to be structured and how are we to interact with each other? And so today I'm going to continue that series. In fact, this is the last uh, message in this series, and this one is entitled The Authentic Christian Household. So how can we know that our lives and our households are not merely Christian in name only? And what are some of the marks of a true Christian home? How do we know that we have a household that God delights in? So today we're going to focus on answering some of those questions, and we're going to go to a text here in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and start heading to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And while you're headed there, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, some headings that will guide us into the features of an authentic Christian household, and they'll be up on the screen there for you. So first of all, one of the features of an authentic Christian household is that we'll know the one and only God. Yahweh is his name. Secondly, love God by living in obedience to him. And that comes from verses 5 and 6. Third, train the next generation of God's people from verse 7. And then finally, project an undeniable witness to a watching world from verses 8 and 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. So hopefully you found your way there to the passage. So I will go ahead and read this and please uh, follow along with me. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4, where we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for you are the one and only true God, the maker of heaven and earth, and you are our Lord. And we come to you here today to worship you as the only one who's worthy of all glory and praise. And so we thank you for this time and this opportunity that you've given us where we can hear from you, where we can hear from your word, where you have so clearly revealed yourself to us so that we don't have to guess as to who you are, but we can truly know you. And even better than that, you have revealed to us the way that you can save us from our greatest enemy and you can uh, even adopt us into your family as your sons and daughters. And so, Lord, uh, we ask that your word would speak to us here today, that it would not return void as you've promised, but that it would 
fulfill the purpose for which you have intended it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we come to this passage, uh, here's kind of the, the background and, and the setting of, of where we're at. Uh, the nation of Israel had just recently been delivered from 430 years of slavery under the Egyptians. And God has had it as his plan to rescue his nation of Israel by rising up a mediator, and that mediator was Moses. And Moses challenged the Egyptian pharaoh to release his people so that they could go out of Egypt and they could freely worship God in the wilderness. And so the way God accomplished this is he had Moses perform various signs and wonders and send a series of plagues to the Egyptian people before the pharaoh would finally release them. And when the Israelites were finally let go, they fled Egypt only to to be blocked by the Red Sea. But that was where God performed his most miraculous work of all, where through Moses, uh, he had the sea parted, and the Israelites were able to cross on dry land. And when the Egyptians pursued on after them, the waters rescinded, and they were all swept away. And so thus God miraculously rescued his people from Egyptian slavery. And that could uh, arguably be considered his most significant work that God had ever performed from the time of creation up to that point in history. It was really a, a miraculous act of salvation. And so who was this God that brought such a great deliverance for his people? And if we're to be an authentic Christian home, we need to know this God as well. And he reveals himself here in this passage. And we see that they're starting in verse 4. So we see here that we are to know the one and only God. Yahweh is his name. And so in Deuteronomy 6.4, God speaking through Moses the prophet gives an announcement where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. So first of all, let's take a look at that word here. That, that word here is actually a command. And in fact, this, this is a very significant passage in the Bible, as, as we'll see. And because of its significance, this passage of Scripture actually has its own name. And that name, you may hear it referred to as the Shema. That's what the Jews of old called it, even to this day, and, and many Christians as well know it as the Shema. But it's known as the Shema because that first word here, uh, that's the Hebrew word, Shema. And it, it is actually in the form of a command. And it implies something much more than simply opening up the ears and letting the sound waves come in so that you can hear what's going on. It is actually a command, so there's an expectation that the people will respond to what they're about to hear. And so it could almost be translated something like, listen. In other words, with what I'm going to tell you is going to require a response from you. And so what Moses was going to tell the people about God would require them to act on what they would learn about him. And so what does he tell them? He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now I want you to pay particular attention there to that title, Lord. I I would venture to guess that most of your English translations that you have out there actually have that word Lord with all capital letters, if, if you notice that. There are a few exceptions, but most do that. And the reason why it's in Lord, all capital letters, is because that actually marks the divine name of God. And the Hebrew name for God is Yahweh. 
Now, the thing with the, the ancient Jews is that they considered the divine name to be so sacred that it was never to be uttered upon the lips. And so whenever the Jews were, were reading uh, the Old Testament scriptures and they come, came upon the divine name, Yahweh, they would actually not say Yahweh. They would read Adonai, which is a, a word that means Lord. That, that'd be how we translate that. So uh, ever since the, the Bible started being translated from the Hebrew, uh, that convention has been maintained, and they would use that, uh, that title Lord instead of putting the divine name. And most of your English translations to this day have maintained that convention with a couple exceptions. So just notice then that uh, from now on, whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you see that that word Lord in all caps, that that is actually the divine name, Yahweh. So here God reveals himself by name. And so you could read that as Yahweh is our God. And also he is only one. There is only one God. There is no other. And so only the one true God could could have managed such a miraculous rescue from such a powerful enemy. And since Yahweh is Israel's God, who has revealed himself to them, who saved them, and there is no other, then he can certainly demand really anything he wants from them, and he does just that. He demands exclusive allegiance from his people. And that's what we see here in verse 5. So because Yahweh our God is, is our God and he is one, then that next verse says, You shall therefore love the Lord, or Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, we're going to break that verse down here a a little further here in a moment, but until then, I'd I'd just like you to think about something. Uh, Do you think the nation of Israel was uh, effective in loving God in the way he has prescribed here, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might? Do you believe that they were actually able to fulfill that command? And the answer is no, they were not. In fact, they... Uh, kind of messed up really pretty quickly. No sooner had God delivered them from slavery in Egypt when they were out in the wilderness where they were supposed to show their thanks and worshiping him, they all of a sudden began to doubt and did not trust God immediately. So there Israel was in the wilderness. They began to look around, notice that food was scarce and water was scarce, as it typically is in, in the desert. And instead of trusting God to provide for them, even miraculously, like he just did in taking them out of Egypt, they began to they began to grumble, and they began to complain, and they began to blame Moses and say, you know what, you should have just left us there in Egypt because, yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had food to eat. And so certainly uh, they, they were not able to fulfill this command. And you, you may think, wow, after everything that the people of Israel had seen, they couldn't even hold on to enough trust and faith in God, even just a little bit, to, to love him as they should. But they were not able. And the reason is because even though the Egyptians were rescued from such a great enemy, they still had an even greater enemy that had yet to be conquered, and that enemy was sin. And uh, since the beginning of time, when the first man, Adam, disobeyed and sinned against God, every human being to walk this earth has been a slave to sin. And the thing with sin is that it's a particularly cruel taskmaster. 
Uh, unlike a, a human captor who may occasionally take pity and show mercy to his human captives, uh, sin is not that way. It, it never rests. It afflicts us day and night, and it does not rest until eventually sin brings forth death. And sin's effects are so comprehensive that even uh, when we try and have good intentions and do right, it, it taints our intentions. And so, for instance, because of sin, if, if someone tries to work hard to follow God's commands and to do what he says, any progress made in that area often brings forth self-righteousness and pride and a self-reliance that has no room for the grace of God working in your life. And so as a result, it plunges people further and further into sin. And so it's just a, a ruthless enemy that mankind has had to dealt with ever since the first man, Adam, sinned. And so in the New Testament, Jesus Christ actually takes this passage in Deuteronomy 6 that we're, we're looking at here, and he actually uses it to show that no man can measure up to this standard. And so we'll take a look at this account in Mark chapter 12. You can flip there if you want, or if you want to stay in Deuteronomy 6, we will be coming back, and you can look at the, uh, the passage up there on your screen. But it's Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And here it reads, And one of the scribes came up and heard him, heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, in, in, this, in this account that we read here, I want you to notice Jesus' response to the scribe. It says that when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, notice he didn't say, you know what, you are exactly right. You will surely have a place in God's kingdom. No, he didn't say that. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which implies that he falls short of the expectations and the requ requirements for God's kingdom. And so here's why. It's that even though that scribe knew exactly what he had to do to be right with God, he lacked the power to do it. And the reason be is because the sin problem, sin still had a hold on this man's life, the scribe's life, just like every other man that, that has ever walked the earth. And so Jesus used this command to show that, you know what, we cannot love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. We could never possibly measure up to that requirement, but instead Jesus used it to point to himself as the one who could meet that standard of righteousness and forever break the bonds 
of slavery that sin has on people. And so that is exactly what Jesus Christ accomplished. Since he is the Son of God, he is one in essence with God the Father. And so because he's God in his nature, he had the power to meet God's standard of loving him with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. And since Jesus took on human flesh to become man, he then became a super... uh, a um, suitable representative to stand in our place and to meet this legal requirement on our behalf to God. And he was able to do that because he was a human being, but without sin whatsoever. And so he was fully able to meet that righteous standard uh, and, uh, and be our representative uh, before God. And so Paul, the apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians four uh, verses four through seven. He said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, paid the debt incurred by our sin, and he rose again from the grave, proving that he conquered sin and death. And anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ alone to rescue them from their sins are forgiven for all sins committed, past, present, and future, and are guaranteed to have eternal life when they pass from this life to the next. So, do you know this one and only true God as he has revealed himself in his holy scripture? Now, you may have some idea of God, maybe as just kind of some being that's out there in space somewhere, but you know, don't really know too much about him. Or maybe you've even considered yourself a Christian, and you've grown up calling yourself a Christian, and maybe even go to church. But if you do not know God as he has revealed himself in the Bible, then you do not have an authentic Christian faith. As an authentic Christian, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to save you from the penalty of your sins. I invite you, if you have not done so already, to place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Not only will you be freed from the slavery to sin and death, but he will give you his Holy Spirit. And then, as Galatians 4 said, you will become an adopted son or daughter of God. And so since you're an adopted son or daughter, that means you have all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son or daughter, which in this case, in relation to God, means that we receive an inheritance. And that inheritance is eternal life. And so if you put your faith and trust in Christ the Spirit of God will come to us and will work in us to increase our faith and our hope and our love for God, all the while working in us to rid the hold that sin may have in our life. So if you are not yet an authentic Christian, I invite you to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation today. So if you've done that today, or if you've already done that, as many of us have, then how should we respond to such a great salvation? Well, we should, as Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6 says, love God by living in obedience to him. And so these verses here, Jesus said that they are the first and greatest commandment, and they still are. And since if we're in Christ, we have his Holy Spirit in us, and we have been set free from the power of sin over over us, so we're more inclined to love God as he has prescribed here in his word. 
And so what does it mean to love God? Well, let's take a look at this, and we'll, we'll break down verse 5, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so first of all, he says, love God with all your heart. And so this word heart here actually demands some explanation because in, in English, how we typically use the word heart, we usually use it to refer to kind of the the, the feeling part of the person, the, the emotions, and, and that sort of thing. But in, in the way this word is used in the Old Testament has a much broader meaning than, than really that. And if really, it, it could even be argued that it means something more like the mind. And so the way they use the word heart here has to do with the, the thinking part of the person, the rational part of the person, the inner part of the person that comes up with, with motives and intentions and that sort of thing. So God here is saying that we are to love him with every aspect of our being that way, the thinking, the rational, the, our intentions and our motives, everything that we, we do inside of us. Secondly, he says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. And that word soul refer, refers to the inner person's feelings and their perceptions. And oftentimes in, in the scriptures, the words heart and soul are paired together in reference to loving God, to seeking God, and to obeying him and returning to the Lord and his commandments. And so therefore, the way it's used here to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul is really a way of saying with all your being. With every aspect of you as a person, you should love the Lord your God with every aspect of your life. And then third here he says, love the Lord your God with all your might. And so if heart and soul refer to the scope of our love for God, then with all your might refers to our capacity. And so with all of our ability, with everything that we are, we are to love God. We're to hold nothing back. And the God who went to the point of giving his only son to save us, he wants all of us. And in practical terms, what does this look like? Well, really, it, it looks like obedience to what God has commanded his people in the scriptures to really love God is to obey him. And so that's why in verse 6 it says, And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. And so God is really interested in his commandments being in us so that they're always on the forefront of our minds so that we're careful to do them. And actually, in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle John shows this relationship between knowing and loving God and obeying him. So I, I want to show you this to make sure you understand this isn't just an Old Testament view only, that the New Testament affirms this very idea. And so if you look in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, and we'll read verses 3 through 6. Again, it should be up on the screen for you if you don't want to find it. Uh, but the, the Apostle John here is speaking, and he says... And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, so in this passage, it talks about him and he and that who that pronoun's referring to is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says, we know that we have come to know him, Jesus Christ, if we keep his commandments. And so clearly the mark of an authentic believer is obedience. We are to keep his commandments. 
And in fact, John, you may have noticed, even went so far as to say here that anyone who claims to know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Very, very strong language there. Now, to be sure, what is being talked about here is not sinless perfection. That's not the case at all. If that were the case, no one could be genuinely saved because no one can follow God with a sinless perfection. In fact, here in 1 John 2, what we just read earlier on in the passage, it talks about how if we sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ who will forgive us for our sins. So it, it anticipates, yes, that we will still sin. But the difference as believers is that sin no longer has a hold on us. We are no longer slaves to sin. And instead, after, after the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, we are then more inclined to love God as we should because we are not captives uh, to sin anymore. And so as, as believers, there should be a very clear evidence of this. And so if you don't believe that there is, then the right thing to do is to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. Okay, so we're to obey his commandments, but it turns out, though, that Jesus' uh, Jesus's commandments are not only for us, but they're for others, which brings us to our next heading here, that we are to train the next generation of God's people from verse 7. So let's take a look at that. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, You shall teach them, them meaning the commandments, diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Okay, so Christian parents, are you committed to the training of your children in God's commandments? You know, many believe that that's the, really the church's responsibility. You know, if we just bring our kids to church, the, the church leaders will, will train up our children and tell them everything that they need to know. And if that's the case, then we'll, we've, we've met that. But look at what it says here. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, this, this word here for teach them diligently in the original language, it, it literally means to repeat over and over and over again. And so that, that's what it means to teach our children. We've we got to repeat it over and over and over again. Now, as parents, wouldn't it be nice if we could tell our children just one time what they had to do? And from there forward, they would just do it exactly like that for the rest of their lives. But anybody who's ever worked with children or has raised children know that they do not operate that way. How, how do children learn? You need to tell them over and over and over and over again. You need to teach them diligently. And in fact, some, uh, some English translations will, will render this instead of teach them diligently. Some say impress onto your children. There's even one translation that says drill them. And so that's the idea here. It's constant. It's repetitive. And for those of us who are parents or have been parents, we know that it is tireless work and it is never ending. So therefore, to relegate this task exclusively to the church uh, once, at best, maybe twice a week, is, is not going to fulfill this requirement to diligently teach our, our children. Now, to be sure, 
a sound teaching church, which, which we aim to be, is going to partner with parents in the training of your children. And so that's why we, uh, we offer a, a discipleship time that for children, specifically for them tailored at their level. And so here, after the service, we have a discipleship time in here for teens and adults. And then the children go back to the gym, and they get discipleship time as well. Why? Because as, as a church, we need to do that as well. We need to diligently uh, teach our children. And so we want to partner with you in, in, fulfill, in fulfilling that expectation that God has placed on us. And also we want to equip you as parents. We know that you need equipping and you need training. And we don't want you to be out in the cold wondering, well, how do I even do that? So we aim to treat to teach you and to train you in the scriptures so that you can then pass that on to your children. But understand that if we're parents, the, the ultimate responsibility is going to lie with us. And so when should this teaching and this training occur? Well, look at the rest of verse 7 there. It says, uh, when you sit at your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So really, what does that say? Well, really, it's a way of saying any time or place, the more the better. Okay, any time is appropriate to train our children in God's ways and his uh, commandments. And so uh, when you look at the occasion for training the next generation of God's people, you'll notice that the occasions appear, though, both planned and spontaneous. So when it says sitting in your house, to me, that kind of gives off the idea that perhaps there's a time where as as a family, as a home, you meet together in the home where you sit down and, and you Go over God's commandments. And so I, I know that in a sermon last week, Trey introduced to you the idea of family worship in the home. And my family practices that as well. And what is family worship? Well, it's nothing more than a dedicated time in the home where you get together as a family and, and you worship God. And this need not uh, take a very long time. Maybe about 15 minutes a day would be more than fine to, to do this. And I found that, that doing this, having a set time of family worship in the home, has just blessed my family tremendously. And I'm sure that if you were to adopt that, this practice, that it, it will be the same for you as, as well. And so the, the way you go about doing it is, first of all, choose a time that works well. Uh, for your family schedule. I think last week Trey probably told you his family tends to do this in the morning, and that's a perfectly good time to do that. But in my family, there's no way that would possibly work because I get out on the road early to commute to work, and I'm sure if I dragged my family out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning to do family worship, it would fail before it even got off the ground. So we don't do that. We hold our family worship time in the evenings, we, we found that uh, right after dinner, but before bedtime is a good time to do that. And again, it doesn't have to take very long, 15 minutes or so. And sometimes it goes longer because we really get into some good discussions, which is great too. But as far as a format, again, there's no one way to do family worship in the home. Uh, but what I would suggest is that you just keep it centered on, on God's word. Because what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to teach the commandments to to our children, right? And so it should focus on that aim. But in my family, we have a very simple format for family worship, and it consists of three things. Uh, they are catechism, scripture, and prayer. Catechism, scripture, and prayer is the format that we do in our home, and it works really well. That first word there, catechism, you may be unfamiliar with that. I know uh, Trey, again, introduced that to you here last week, if, if you were here, and he, he talked about that. 
But what that means is, first of all, the word catechize simply means to teach. Okay, so it sounds fancy, but in its its meaning, it's it's not. All the word catechize means is to teach. And so what a catechism is then is it's no more than a tool to train others in Christian doctrine or essentially these essential truths that we get from the Bible. And so a catechism is nothing more than kind of a confession of faith of Christian teachings, but they're organized by a question and answer format. And so the question, will an- the question will ask a question about Christian doctrine, and the answer will give an answer to the question. So what we do during catechism time is that we'll take those one at a time, and we'll memorize the question and, and the answer so that our children get f- thoroughly familiar with Christian doctrine or the core teachings of the Scripture. Now, some may wonder, why even bother to take the time to do that, to, to learn to, and to memorize doctrine? Well, I, I think there's a very good reason. So let me give you an example of why that is. And it has to do with my boss's computer, okay? So my boss had this computer. And, you know, if you look at a computer, right, you look at the screen, there's the desktop. And oftentimes people, they'll have like a background picture for, for their desktop um, or, or some something there to look at. But the thing with my boss's computer, if you were to look at his desktop, if there was any kind of picture there, you wouldn't be able to tell. Because what he had is he just had his desktop completely cluttered with all of these different files that he saved to his desktop. And oftentimes I'd be in his office and somebody would call him, maybe his boss or somebody else, and would say, hey, go, go ahead and send me this file that you have. And so when it came time to do that, he would look at his desktop and he'd just kind of stare at it for a minute. And he would talk to himself and he'd say, okay, where did I put that? And so he would look around. And so he'd open up one file. Oh, no, that's not it. Oh, let me go to this other one. Open that up. No, that's not it either. And so finally, after much trial and error, my boss would finally find the file he was looking for to to send to his boss or to whoever. And the whole time, I'd just be shaking my head, kind of like, why does he insist on being this disorganized? But then one day I figured out why as I was sitting in my office and he gave me a call and he said, hey, I need you to come up to my office and show me how to create a folder on my computer. And I said, you want me to show you how to create a folder? I said, you don't know how to do that. He said, don't judge me. Just come up here and show me how to create a folder. So I, I went up to his office and I showed him how to create the little folder. And it's, it's amazing what happened because now you look at his desktop And instead of all those files there everywhere, now he's got just a handful of folders and all of his uh, files there in the folders so that if somebody calls him up and says, hey, can you you send me that thing I, I need to get from you? He says, sure, yeah, just takes him a minute. He goes to that file where he, or that folder where he knows that the files are stored and immediately he can find it and he can send it to the person who's asked for it. So consider this for a moment. Your brain is my boss's computer, okay? And all those files that, you, that I described all over my boss's desktop, think of that, that's, that's your knowledge of the Bible. That's all the scripture that, that you've learned just through reading it, maybe through Bible study, perhaps even, even through memorization of the scripture. And so it's all there, and it's everything you need, and it is sufficient. So if you need it, it's there. However... Just because you have a knowledge of the Bible, 
doesn't necessarily mean that it's organized in the most useful way for you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know how all these truths of Scripture relate to each other. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you know um, if, if you're countered with an objection to biblical teaching, that you can immediately pull the right truth you need from your memory. And so doctrine does that for us. It kind of becomes the file system, if you will, so that as you learn the, the central truths, the, the, the doctrine from Scripture, what begins to happen then is as you read the Scriptures, you're able to file it away in, in a way that's more meaningful. And so you can read the Scripture and say, okay, this has to do with God's omnipresence. Let me put that there. This has to do with justification by faith. Let me put that there. This has to do with sanctification. I'll put that there. This has to do with uh, the nature of the church. I'll put that there. And so you then begin to to organize in a meaningful way. You understand it more fully. You know how all the teachings of Scripture fit together. And so that if you really need to to draw out that biblical truth, you can do so uh, more easily. So certainly we advocate for Scripture memory. Yes, you have to do that. And in fact, uh, Mitch here following the service during the discipleship time is going to talk about just that. He's going to talk about the discipline of Scripture memory and meditation and why that's so important. And so, yes, we need to read the Bible. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. And you can do that, and that's enough. But it's also helpful to get to learn some doctrines so that you can mem- uh, understand better that scripture and how it all relates together and how it's all organized. And so we, that's why we, we do that time of catechism in our home to teach our children doctrine so that as they learn the Bible, they can know how it all relates together and, and understand it better. And so we do that. We do the catechism. Uh, the second thing we do uh, during our, our family worship time is uh, we do scripture. Uh, we either read a portion of scripture or uh, we'll may even work on memorizing a, a passage. Right now we're working on memorizing the Ten Commandments. So you could do that or you can just read a passage of scripture and ask your children questions. You know, check check for understanding. And it doesn't have to be real deep, but as you can imagine, children often have a, a problem paying attention. And oftentimes, if you ask them questions, it kind of holds them accountable. Okay, mom and dad are going to ask me something, so I better listen. And so, and this this is a good point, too, is that, you know, if you do something like family worship, you know, Keep, keep in mind to keep your expectations realistic, right? I mean, kids are going to be kids. They're going to fall asleep on you. They're going to they're gonna act up. They're going to fidget, and they're going to do all these other things. And so, yeah, there will be times if you hold family worship or however you instruct your children, you'll think, you know, this just isn't getting through. Oh, my goodness. How, how many times am I going to have to do this? But what does the Scripture say? Teach them diligently over and over and over again. And then what happens is you'll you'll begin to see fruit o- over time, and it's uh, and it's a really amazing thing to see. And so we'll, we'll s- certainly spend some time reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible together, and then finally we spend a little time in prayer. Uh, either my myself or my wife will will lead in prayer, or we'll let the kids take turns because they need to learn how to get comfortable speaking uh, to God and and to praying and in praying in front of others. And so we give them an opportunity for that as well. So again, real simple format: catechism, Bible, and uh, and prayer. And and again, uh, regarding the catechism, we do have some samples in the back of our resource table of kind of the start of a catechism. If you want to start that in your home, you can pick up an example of that. Uh, they're, They're free for the taking back there, and you can see what that looks like. 
And so that's all there is to family worship. Again, it doesn't have to take long, maybe 15 minutes or so. But if you take this time as a family of really learning and and studying God's word together, I think what's going to happen is that with that planned time, it will lead to spontaneous times of discussing God and and his commandments together as as well. That, you know, it'll get this in the kids' minds. And uh, you never know when they'll just pop up with a question, you know, on on the way to the store, you know, doing something around the house. They'll just say, you know, what about this? Because it's in their mind. They're thinking about it. And, And sooner or later, hopefully we'll get to the point of getting to where we talk about the Lord you know, when we're sitting at home, when we're going along the way, and when we lie down and when we rise. And so that there's this continuous presence of, of having the truth of God um, talked about in, in our home. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, wait a minute, I don't, I don't have children, or my children are grown and out of the house. Great, okay, you can still be busy at work training up the next generation of God's people. Uh, certainly, we, we do that task here with Children's Discipleship Time, and we're always looking for more help. If, if you would like to train and nurture the next generation of, of believers here, there is an opportunity for you to do that. Or maybe you want to take it upon yourself to disciple a younger believer in the faith. And by younger, I don't necessarily mean younger by age, although it certainly could be that, but maybe just someone who hasn't been walking with the Lord as long as you have. And you can then, you know, take them under your wing and disciple that person and and impart to them the truths of God that you've learned as well. And so that that those are ways that even if you, you don't have children or if, if your children are grown up and out of the house, you can still um, take it upon yourself to to do as, as God has directed us to here in training up the next generation of God's people. And I believe that if, if we take it upon ourselves to not only keep God's commandments, but to teach others to do them as well, uh, something amazing is going to happen in, in our life and in our walk, and it's, it's this. And taking us to our last heading here, we will project an undeniable witness uh, to a watching world. And I get that here from verses 8 and 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, so it talks about, you know, binding them, uh, the commandments of God on the hand and and between the eyes. You may wonder, what in the world does that refer to? Am I supposed to do that in a way that's literal? Well, in fact, some people have believed that. And in fact, uh, the, the Jews of of old, and even Orthodox Jews to this day will use what's called phylacteries. And a phylactery is a, it's a little box, and they have like a very miniature written out of, of this, these commandments here. They have written out and kind of rolled up, and they put it in the little box, and they tie it around their, their forehead, and they'll tie it around their, their uh, wrists, and it's, it's called phylacteries. And so there are Jews that have read Deuteronomy chapter 6 here about binding these commandments around their, their uh, hand and around their, between their eyes, and they've taken it very literally. But that's not the way this was intended here. And actually, Jesus himself uh, condemned this outward display of piety because it was already around at the time of Jesus. And in fact, he said here of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse, uh, verse 5, 
He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So there you see Jesus directly countering that teaching. You know, there, there's no way we can get the word of God by osmosis, you know, having it written down and, you know, actually wrapping it around our head. That's, that's not what he's implying to here. What, what, it, what it is, it's a, it's a figure of speech. Right, it's talking about how to have God's word and his commandments always at hand, always at the ready, always on the forefront of your mind. You think about it when it talks about binding to the hand. If something's on your hand, it's it's there. It's it's ready and it's accessible, right? You you think for instance, why do we all wear watches? Right there, right by the hand. It's so that at any time we have this continuous and this persistent understanding of what time it is. It's right there. We can look at our watch and we always have this awareness of the time because here as, as uh, people in the West, time is very important to us. We want to be prompt. We want to be on time. We want to get to where we need to go and, and be there at the right time. So we wear watches. So we always have this understanding of what time it is. It's just right there at the hand. We can look at it. And then going even further on than that, uh, he puts it as, put it as frontlets between your eyes. And so if you imagine how often would something be on your mind if it was hanging there right in front of your face, right? I mean, you couldn't get away from that even if you wanted to. You would see it hanging there. It's like, yeah, I've, I've got that there still in front of me. I'm never going to forget that's there. And so that's, that's how we're to have God's word and his commandments on our heart. It's, it's to be completely a part of you and have and be, be so immersed in it so that as you go about your day, it's always at the forefront of your mind. It's always at the ready. So when you're faced with decisions and, and, you're, and you're even those kind of those ethical dilemmas that we get as believers where we're tempted to do wrong and we want to do what's right and what's pleasing to God, his word is always at the forefront. And so then we, we know just what to do. And so if, if we're striving to be authentic Christians, then we will know the one true God. And if we truly know him, then we'll love him by obeying his commandments. And if we truly love him and treasure his word, then we should be committed to not only keeping that in us, but even to passing those commandments on to the next generation of his people. And if God's word has that kind of hold on us so that it's always in the memory and it's always at the forefront of our mind and something remarkable is going to happen. And what's going to happen is uh, we're going to be this undeniable witness to the world. You know, people are going to look at us and they're going to say, you know what, there's something really different about them. They are held to a much different law and thus a much different lawgiver than than I hold to. And so they're going to look at that and they're going to see that. And some people in this world will will find that appealing. And it, it'll be a witness to them where they'll, if, if, if the Spirit's working on their heart, where they, they may even say, you know, I, I want to be like that. I want what that person has. But at the same time, there will be others and probably many more others who will look at us and hate what they see. And, and they will not like that because that will fly right in the face of the way that they are living their life. And, and they will detest us for us. And I, I think if, if we're all honest and we're all paying attention, that if we look around the world today, that it's not getting any friendlier for those of us who, who truly try and, and love and know and serve God. And so, parents, a question for us all. Are we diligently training our children for the world that they'll have to face as adults? Uh, it, it may be a sobering question. I, I know it is for me. And uh, that I think about, wow, 
who knows what they will have to face when, when they're adult believers and, and what, what kind of uh, challenges and persecutions they will have to encounter. We, we may not even be able to envision that yet. May, maybe it'll get better. We can pray for that, but who, who knows? It might not, and if we see the track we're on, it probably won't be. And so here's, here's a question for you. What about you and your household? Do you bear the marks of an authentic Christian? And remember that it starts with each of us individually. We'll all ultimately have to give an account before God for our own faith or lack thereof, and not for someone else's. So if you've never done so, I I encourage you, wait no longer. Embark on the journey today of knowing the one and only true God, Yahweh, as he has revealed himself uh, in his word. And, uh, and how do we know him? Well, we, we believe in, in his son, that he is sent into the world to save us, uh, who are his, from, from our sins. And so do not delay. Uh, put your faith in him alone today. And so if, I, I know there's not much time here to talk about this. And so if you have questions, if I, if I said some things that you didn't understood or you would like some more information on, I'm always free to talk after the service um, or, you know, you can contact myself or, or Trey Talley during the week. Our, our email address is on the church website or give us a call. You know, we would love to talk to you about what it means to be in, to be an authentic Christian, to really believe uh, in Jesus Christ and to be saved from your sins and to have that assurance that when we pass from this life, we will have eternal life with him and we will get to enjoy the being in his presence forever. And so uh, some things to think about here today. And again, if, if you have any questions for me, feel free to, to grab me anytime after the service. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, as we come to here and, and we've looked at your, your first and greatest commandment, uh, this commandment upon which all, all the law and the prophets hang, and, and we look at it and we're, we're to know you and we're to love you with all our soul and with all our heart and with all our might. And it's, it's a tall order. And I know that this isn't something that we can achieve on our own power. So, Lord, I thank you for sending your son in the world, for dying in our place for our sins. And meanwhile, in his life, he kept your law perfectly and he truly loved you with all his heart, soul, and might. And so because that we we get that record of his righteousness credited to us. And so we don't have to worry and we don't have to believe that, that we have to be perfect because we know that's not possible, Lord. But we thank you for your son and for the work he did on our behalf. But Lord, also as, as we know that uh, you've given us your Holy Spirit to put to death sin in us and to, and to work in regenerating us and to Get us to where we love you more and more so that we can better fulfill this commandment to love you with all our being. Father, help us to do that and help us to not be discouraged for when we stumble and when we fall. But, Father, have us look to you and uh, know that your work is not yet finished in us and that you will truly finish what you started and that we, we will be saved and eternally in your hand and be in your presence where we will worship you forever. So, Father, for those who do not have yet that assurance, I ask that you would do a work in them and that they would turn to you today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.